invite you to open your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 34. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and had laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. God, as we come to you now, as we open up your word, Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, be present here in a particular way, in a powerful way. Lord, we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, 
and hearts that understand. Lord, as you take the spiritual blindness of the disciples and give amazing sight, we pray that the eyes of our hearts would, like this blind man, see clearly. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to put a question before you this evening. What does the Bible teach are the marks of genuine faith and sadly genuine unbelief? Or put it more poignantly and personally, what does genuine faith or genuine unbelief look like in your own life? The central theme of this passage is that the marks of genuine faith and unbelief is seeing God rightly and savoring Him truly. That, that the dividing line, as it were, between genuine faith and unbelief is whether or not you see God rightly and whether you savor Him truly. And the amazing thing about this passage is it shows us how seeing and savoring with the eyes of faith is a process. A process by which we go from unbelief to faith. We go from not seeing and not savoring to seeing him rightly and savoring him truly. Like an archaeologist who wipes away the debris from a beautiful mosaic we know that with each trial, each temptation, each experience in the Christian life, that we begin to see God more clearly and savor Him more rightly. That those who have walked with God for either a short or a long time have seen that process of increasingly seeing Him clearly with the eyes of faith. One of the fascinating things about Mark's gospel is that he will often have a teaching followed by a miracle followed by a teaching. And this is what some have called a Markian sandwich. You have the two pieces of bread, the teaching, that are illustrated through the meat of the sandwich. That is, that the, that the, the, the miracle or the event, it demonstrates what the teaching is Pointing to. And so we're going to look at this delicious Markian sandwich this evening in three acts. First, we're going to look at the revealing of the blind disciples. Secondly, we're going to look at the healing of the blind man. And then thirdly, the healing of the blind disciples. Our passage begins with unbelief from the disciples. The disciples have a profound lack of understanding about who Jesus is. And this is displayed by the fact that they're faced with a similar problem, posing a similar set of questions. Verse 14 says that Jesus and his disciples find themselves nearly out of bread, and they're not sure what to do. And the amazing thing about this predicament is this, this is the exact 
same predicament that the disciples were in right before the feeding of the 5,000 and before the feeding of the 4,000. And now we have one loaf for 13 people. And this strikes up a discussion. The disciples are wondering whether or not they're going to have enough food. And underneath this discussion, underneath this wondering, they're also secretly wondering if Jesus is going to do another sign, another miracle. And into this discussion, Jesus interjects a warning. He says, watch out. Watch out. You're dangerously close to something deadly. And if you don't watch out, you're going to be every bit as hostile to me as my worst enemies. Watch out, for you have the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. They don't even see it. It's like a deadly carbon monoxide gas that they don't even know they're breathing in, and it is going to leave them dead. What does Jesus mean? Well, a clue to understanding what Jesus means is found in the verses preceding this discussion, particularly in verse 11, in how the Pharisees respond to Jesus's feeding of the 4,000. Verse 11 says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You see, despite having performed numerous miracles, the Pharisees need another sign. It's not enough. And their need for a sign reveals their unbelief. And so Jesus, in warning the disciples, he is saying to them, watch out. Watch out for the kind of unbelief that exhibits itself in needing to do another miracle. See, their unease about not having enough bread reveals, it shows, it demonstrates their unbelief. Notice what he says in verses 19 and 21. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You see, despite the fact that they have been with Jesus now for quite some time. And despite the fact they have been witnesses to not one, but two miraculous feedings of thousands of people from just a little bit of food, they are left and ensnared in unbelief. Remember who this warning is to. These are to men who have spent all of this time with Jesus. They have had eyes that have witnessed him do miraculous, unthinkable things. They have ears that have heard him speak unbelievable truths from the very mouth of God. They have been witnesses, and yet they have 
forgotten. And the amazing thing, the absolutely tragic thing, is that all of this, all of the words, all of the signs are meant to point to who Jesus is, that he is God Almighty. And they, despite this warning, ignore his warning. They think that his reference to leaven is a reference to physical leaven, physical bread, rather than spiritual leaven. See, the way that they respond is exhibit A of their unbelief. It's exhibit A of the fact that they don't get it. Have you ever heard Jesus warn you like that? Have you ever heard Jesus, through the preaching of the word, through the speaking of truth from a friend, warn you like that? Have you ever heard him say, watch out the spiritual path you're on? Is leading you straight to hell Watch out Your sin is going to kill you And do you take Jesus's warnings seriously Or do you simply ignore them? This past winter My wife and I had an HVAC technician come out and look at our furnace And he said, I want to show you something. And I come downstairs, and we're by the furnace, and he's holding this carbon monoxide detector. And he says, we got nine parts per million here, carbon monoxide. I said, good, we're going to be fine. He's like, no, you don't understand. Nine parts per million, that's not good. That's going to kill you. And in a very short amount of time, you and your whole family are going to be breathing in this carbon monoxide gas. You could pass out, and this is going to kill you. See, the reality is that our unbelief is like that carbon monoxide gas. Some of us have been ensnared in unbelief, and we don't even realize it. You hear God's word, his promises to you, spoken day after day, week after week, some of you, year after year. You've seen his provision over and over and over. I bet if you sat down, you could recount his provisions over and over and over. And yet, unbelief shows itself in profound ways in times of difficulty. You find yourself beginning to doubt, paralyzed by anxiety and fear, deeply troubled, that God has forgotten about you. Or perhaps you've heard God's call through his word to obedience over and over and over again. You know that God has provided the means for obedience through the fresh air of the individual and corporate means of grace. You've, you've heard him beckon you to read his word to come to him in prayer, to sit under his teaching, maybe in a small group, maybe one of the truth and love counseling sessions. You have pastors and elders who care deeply about you and your soul, who have warned you, who have made themselves readily available to you. And yet, 
the tragedy is rather than basking and breathing in deeply the fresh air of the individual and corporate means of God's grace that he has provided, you continue to, to breathe in and out, sometimes unknowingly, the deadly carbon monoxide air of unbelief, anxiety, worldly cares, and sinful besetting sins. See, the amazing truth, though, of the gospel is that despite our pers persistent unbelief, despite the disciples' persistent unbelief, Jesus pursues them. He pursues them, and he pursues us. And he pursues the disciples through this miracle, the healing of the blind man. Oh, the kindness and patience of our Lord, that he pursues his disciples by performing a miracle, and not just any miracle, a miracle that is meant to exhibit what he is going to do in them. That is, the physical miracle, hear this, the physical miracle of the healing of the blind man illustrates the spiritual transformation that he will do in the disciples. The, the physical healing of the blind man is going to be exhibit A of the spiritual transformation that he is going to work in his disciples. Verse 22 says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. You see, these people, just like the Pharisees, just like Herod, just like the disciples, they want Jesus to do another miracle. And the amazing kindness and patience of our Lord is that he not only grants the request, but he actually performs a personal miracle for the disciples. Notice the text says that Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him out of the village. So it's only the disciples there witnessing this miracle. And it's absolutely bizarre the way Jesus heals him. He heals him in stages. Virtually no other miracle in the whole of the Gospels is like this. A half healing followed by a full healing. You can almost read it and wonder, did Jesus just not conjure up and get enough divine power the first time in order to fully heal this man? Did he just not work up enough divine power to heal this man and that he sees only partially? The key to understanding the purpose of this miracle is remembering who the miracle is for. Who is witnessing this miracle? miracle. You see, Jesus' miracle is meant to be a visible picture for the disciples of the transformation from their unbelief to faith. The physical miracle of the healing of the blind man is going to be exhibit A of their spiritual transformation. This is the Markian sandwich, the teaching followed by the miracle followed by the teaching. And so we see Act 3, the healing of the blind disciples. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's the crucial moment now. Jesus has warned them about their unbelief. He has graciously and patiently provided another miracle. And now he asks them the most important question anyone can ever ask. Who is Jesus Christ? He says, who am I? You've spent all this time with me. You've seen the miracles. You've heard my teaching. Who am I? And notice he receives muddled responses. They're deeply confused. They're not seeing correctly. They're seeing men, but they're walking around as trees. They say, well, some people say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say a prophet. You know, we don't have time to probe into what these answers might mean, but they are grossly inadequate explanations for who Jesus is. At best, they signify that they believe that Jesus is a kind of prophet sent from God who is a miracle worker, but in no way the God of the universe, the sovereign all-sustained, reigning king of the universe. And so Jesus gets personal, as he always does. And he says, okay, that's what others say. But who do you say that I am? And Peter chimes in, as he always does, speaks on behalf of the group, and he says, you are the Christ. We're tempted to end there and say, Peter's got it. He's seeing clearly. Peter's got it. He sees Jesus as the anointed one. Jesus as the Messiah. He gets it. He sees clearly. But hold on a minute. Peter is still not seeing fully. He sees a Messiah, but he sees him walking around like trees. Incredible. Look at verse 31. Absolutely incredible to hear this. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter cannot cope with the idea of a suffering Messiah. He understands Jesus as the Messiah, but it's an incomplete picture. He only sees partially. He can't cope with the idea of Jesus being a Messiah sent from God, very God of very God, who is going to lay down his life willingly and suffer death on the cross. He just absolutely cannot cope with it. For him, the Messiah is meant to be a triumphant political Messiah who is going to rescue 
the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. He's going to triumphantly lead God's people out of political oppression. He's not one who's going to suffer, willingly give up his life and die on the cross. And yet, as we read earlier in our service from Acts 2, we know that eventually Peter did see clearly. Listen to how Peter describes Jesus in Acts 2. And just picture how he is describing our Lord. He says in Acts 2, 22 through 24, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So there we see the miracles, mighty works, wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, now hear this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And yet God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We see two glorious Mark changes in Peter's account of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' miracles now, according to Peter, are no longer viewed as an end in themselves, but they testify to his identity as the Messiah. And secondly, Jesus' death is no longer inconsistent with his being the Messiah, but is now seen as an integral component of his messianic work. He has gone from not seeing to seeing fuzzily to seeing clearly with the eyes of faith. Unbelief has been driven out and faith has come in. And as we close this evening, I want to highlight three strategies for driving out unbelief from this passage that demonstrate how we go from unbelief to faith, how we go from not seeing and not savoring to seeing God rightly and savoring Him truly. First, we must recall God's promises and past faithfulness. The problem for us, the problem for the disciples, is that often when faced with trials, difficulties, temptations, our own sin, weakness, and failure. Often, we don't remember. See, the disciples' chief issue is they don't recall what Jesus has done for them. And the amazing kindness, of course, is that Jesus reminds them of their experience. He reminds them of what they saw with their very eyes. He reminds them that they saw Jesus on two different occasions feed thousands of people with just a little bit of food. And to make sure they know that their senses weren't fooling them, he even appeals to their senses. He says, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? He appeals to their own experience 
of their past faithfulness. God's promises, recalling God's promises and recalling his past faithfulness drives out unbelief and increases faith. You see, Jesus is saying, if I can feed 9,000 people with a little bit of food, you have nothing to worry about if we've only got one loaf of bread. See, but it's a testimony to our frailty, to their frailty of memory that they would ever worry about food again. I mean, could you, could you just imagine having spent years with Jesus ever worrying about food again, ever worrying that you would be provided for again? And yet you would think, surely I'll never doubt that Jesus could provide for me. And yet it's a frailty of memory. They forget. To slay unbelief, we must recall Oh, friends, we must recall God's promises and past faithfulness. It's in our moments, not when everything is going smoothly, but in the moments of greatest difficulty, the moments of greatest anxiety, that we must engage in a holy war, a holy war to recall God's past faithfulness and His promises. It's at those times we must fight and cry with Christ, like Christian did in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where it says that after the spending the night in prayer, Christian said this, he said, What a fool am I to lie stinking in this dungeon when I may well walk out in liberty. And listen how he gets out. He says, I have a key in my bosom called promise that I am persuaded will open any locked door in doubting castle. You see, recalling the promises of God was the key that allowed Christian and hopeful to escape the unbelief of doubting castle. And you have a key too, dear believer. You have a key, and that is the promises written in God's word for you. And he is calling you to, by faith, Engage in the holy war of recalling his promises. But don't forget, it's a fight. Remember, it says that Christian and hopeful engaged in a spiritual war for these promises. It says that they prayed all night. See, we too must engage in this holy war of remembering God's promises. We must search the scriptures. We must claim the promises. We must write them down. We must post them next to our little devotional chairs or wherever you read your Bible. You must put them in the car. You must, you must have friends who you can call who can remind you of his word in those times when you are doubting and you're full of unbelief. He said, remind me. Remind me of the promises of God. Tell them to me. Whatever we do, Whatever you do, don't forget God's promises to you in his word. And in addition, recall God's past faithfulness to you. I know my own proneness to forget God's faithfulness to me. In my study at home, I have a, a little notebook, a kind of scrap notebook um, that has... Over the last 10 years, little reminders 
times in which I have seen God provide for me, where he's brought me to faith. He's released me from the bonds of addiction. He's lifted me above the clouds of anxiety and depression. He has smashed the introspective mirrors of self-doubt. He has graciously provided for my family again. And every time God provides, I just put a little note or maybe something that um, reminds me of that time. Maybe it's a note from a friend. Maybe it's something that someone gave me. And in times of deep doubt and unbelief, I open up that little scrap notebook and I'm reminded again of God's faithfulness to me. Secondly, we must refocus on the real God. Like the disciples, we have gross misunderstandings of who God is. Peter's view of Jesus was shaped by his Jewish culture, even his Jewish religious culture. Of course, the Jews and the Jew Jewish religious leaders believed that when the Messiah came, he would be a triumphant political Messiah who would release them from the oppression of the Romans and would lead them in victory. And Peter swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. Our views of God can likewise be shaped by our culture, even our church culture. For some God, for some who live in a culture of productivity, God is an overbearing boss who seems to be always demanding more. For those who grew up in a broken home, God perhaps is an angry father who might lash out at any moment. We live in a day of self-expression and relativism, and God is whoever you want him to be. And this makes its way even in the church. In a church culture where the majority of folks are members of a minority culture, the ultimate crisis of their life is viewed as believing that poverty, social oppression, and injustice is the greatest obstacle they face. Whereas in other church cultures, particularly those that teach the spirituality of the church, that church is supposedly the place where we talk about doctrine and evangelism and global missions, spiritual issues. And the world is the place where we talk about worldly issues. The spiritual, spirituality of the church is often touted as a place that God is not concerned, or he's certainly much less concerned about whether, whether believers are actively engaged in good works, actively engaged in caring for the poor, actively engaged in feeding the hungry, actively engaged in bringing justice for the oppressed, giving shelter to the homeless, clothing the naked, resisting words of racism, or resisting words that are belittling. You see, Jesus, the God of the universe, will not submit to the disciples, to yours, or to my attempts to make him somebody he is not. He will only be who he really is, the sovereign, all-sufficient king of the universe. This is why it is so important that we have a correct 
doctrine of God. This is why it's so important that we correctly understand the divine attributes. Friends, don't settle for a fuzzy view of God. It is so easy to even unintentionally settle or wrongly understand God as he really is. I was fascinated reading last year James Dozell's book, All That Is In God. It's a book that uh, traces the ways in which the classical expression of the divine attributes has been distorted, particularly when it comes to the doctrine of divine immutability, the doctrine that God never changes, and that he traces how some of the best evangelical theologians, even reformed evangelical theologians, even well-known reformed theologians, have, even without knowing it, challenged the classical expression of how we are to understand the reality that God never changes. He says, quote, some who have pulled apart the older orthodoxy seem genuinely unaware of having done so, breathing that carbon monoxide gas. They don't even realize it. And what's fascinating is as Dozell looks at, well, how did this happen? How is it that, that classic theism was overthrown even by some of the best Reformed theologians? He points out that one of the key things that motivated them to change was a desire, quote, to make God's relationship with us more personally and genuinely reciprocal. And doesn't that make sense? We live in a culture that emphasizes that the importance of genuine relationship, underline genuine, and that genuine relationship is meant to be reciprocal, that a genuine relationship is give and take, and that the most important thing in a relationship is not who is right, but that both people are heard. Relationships that are real are genuine, authentic give and take, and then you project that onto who God is, then God needs to be a person who changes. God needs to be a person who, who, who um, makes changes in and of himself. He reciprocally changes as a part of an, of an authentic relationship. This is a God of our own making, not the God of the universe. Therefore, chiefly because it is so easy we must refocus on the reality of who God is. And then finally, we must request further grace from the Father to recall and to refocus. Fascinating. In Matthew's Gospel, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says these astonishing words. He says, flesh and blood did not re reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, ultimately, Peter was dependent upon God for the faith that he needed. Peter first confessed that Jesus was the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. No doubt he had in mind 1 Samuel 2, God's special chosen servant 
who would redeem Israel. And yet he couldn't cope, but eventually he did see Jesus with increasing clarity. Friends, make it your aim. Make it your goal. Say to the Lord, Lord, I want to see you with increasing clarity. But when you do that, acknowledge, Lord, I will never do this. This will never happen in my heart apart from the illumination of your spirit. You see, the call this evening, friends, isn't ultimately to strive harder, to try harder at refocusing and reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. But it's ultimately a call to grow in dependence on God for all the grace that we require. It's ultimately a call to grow in our dependence that God would remind us who He is and keep our eyes fixed and focused on Him. You see, if this is true, the only way we will stay fixated on Christ is by His grace alone. We need to pray and we need to plead with God. God, pour out your grace on me that I might see you clearly. You see, this is the hope of the gospel, that we are entirely dependent upon the grace of God from beginning to end to drive out our unbelief. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Oh, may we put to death unbelief and cry out for a fresh outpouring of his grace upon us this evening. Let's pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that this evening. Lord, that you would make us a radically God-dependent people. Lord, a, a people who are radically dependent upon you to provide the grace that we so desperately need. Lord, we thank you that you have been here by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would take these words and apply them deep in our hearts. Lord, that you might take away our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, and that we might joyfully and willingly find all of our joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ and in obedience to his will. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.